The Playlist with Fiona Williams. I was broke and my mom floated me while I wrote Desperate Housewives. Hi, and welcome to The Playlist, where we talk about movies and TV shows that are worth your time in conversation with their creators. I'm Fiona Williams and I'm Head of Curation at SBS On Demand. And today my guest is a legendary television showrunner, Mr. Mark Cherry. And he's here to talk all things Why Women Kill, given the new season is about to drop in January. Perhaps best known as the creator and showrunner of Desperate Housewives, Mark Cherry honed his writing chops on some of the seminal American sitcoms of the 80s. Golden Girls, anyone? And he has made a career out of blending comedy and drama and mystery and whimsy in stories about suburban women who harbour deadly secrets and wear great frocks. It's a template that he set with Desperate Housewives in the early noughties, and it has evolved into Why Women Kill, which was a huge hit when it launched a couple of years ago for us at SBS On Demand. And you can still stream season one. It stars Jennifer Goodwin and Lucy Liu and Kirby Howe Baptiste, who all play women who happen to have lived in the same house across three different timelines, and who all have their own stories of betrayal and revenge. And as I say, season one is streaming at SBS On Demand right now. And in January, we launch season two. But this one's a bit like Fargo in that each season is its own anthology storyline. So you don't have to have seen season one to jump into season two, but why not? This one has all new characters and an all new timeline and stars Alison Tolman and Lana Perea and Nick Frost in this self-contained story in 1949. So just on the cusp of the 50s, and it looks at women grappling with the beauty standards and the social norms of the era and explores the lengths to which they'll go in order to belong. And again, I'll remind you, it's called Why Women Kill. I see these garden club ladies every week at this bistro downtown. How does someone join a club like that? Start of the day convinced I would never laugh again. And then you walked in wearing that frock. My whole life, you've been worried about other people's opinions. Maybe it's time to be selfish. Ladies! You have a lover. My husband is inches from death. I don't know who you are, but you're certainly not a front. I admire women who try to remake themselves. When women like us do it well enough, no one can imagine we were ever anyone else. <laughs> How are you this fine morning? Still dead? Pity. The 10-part season drops at SBS On Demand on Saturday, January 15. But in the meantime, Mark Cherry joins me in the Zoom room to talk all things Why Women Kill. And of course, I'm going to sneak in a couple of questions about the Golden Girls. How could I not? Anyway, please welcome Mark Cherry. Mark Cherry, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and thank you for inviting us back into this world of murderous women and the men who drive them to <laughs> distraction. Men driving them to all sorts of hideous deeds. Yeah, that's that's my bread and butter. <laughs> you do it well. Um, 
So going into season two, um, when did you write this, and did you did you sort of have a plan of a couple of seasons when you were when you were mapping out this season? Tell, tell us how you how you got here to, to season it's, two. It's actually a, a cute story. I keep threatening to write a movie. So I at my agency, I had a my TV agents and I had a movie agent. And so a few years ago, I said, you know, I'm just I'm going to work on movies, and TV changed. And suddenly, you know, because of Netflix and everything streaming, you know, they were suddenly doing less episodes, which, you know, compared to the 23, 24 episodes a season that I was used to doing, television somewhere along the way became humane in how it was created. And so this has happened now twice because uh, I've got a future project coming up. I keep taking my movie ideas and taking them and making them TV shows and then elongating them. And uh, this was a movie idea. So I'd come up with the characters and the concept and was going to do it as a movie. And when CBS said, we want a second season of Why Women Kill, I had a kind of moment of, hmm, what should I do? And then I realized, wait, wait, I got an idea. And so I, I brought it into my writing staff and we added some characters and just expanded. And I made, got um, 10 hours out of it, which was, was lovely. And I have a terrific writing staff and they helped tremendously. So uh, that's how it, how it began. And going into season two, you've adapted the format a little, you know, we're, we're just the single timeline this time. What, what was the thinking there and, and sort of this, this focus on? Here's what I wanted, wanted to do. The whole idea of doing this, a lot of the things that I felt at times were constraints about the, you know, Desperate Housewives, my first foray into hour-long TV. You know, you got to build to a cliffhanger every season and you got to set up the next season and the 23 episodes and all of that. Um, the I, Part of the, the way I created Why Women Kill and made it an anthology is I wanted to not artistically be tied into any constraints. So I could bring something new stylistically, new characters, new setting, new style, you know, second season, I used a narrator. First season, I didn't. And that'll be something that the writers and I can look at the, the story we're telling every season and the decide the stylistic flourishes based on that. It, I gave myself freedom to every season reinvent. And it's wonderful because as much as I loved, you know, creating Desperate Housewives and those characters, you know, after I did 180 episodes in that show and you felt a little hemmed in and it's lovely to be able to do a beginning, middle and end in 10 episodes and you tell the story and you get to definitive endings and then you move on and tell another story. So for me, it was the conceit of the show and the anthology format. You know, it I designed it that way to offer me all the, the stylistic and artistic freedom I could have ever hoped for. And why 1949 this time? Sort of that particular, just on the cusp of the 50s, what's what's the thinking there? You know what? Um, Part of it is going to sound silly, but one of the themes I was looking at, it was one, an era I hadn't done in the first three seasons because I'd done 63, 84, and then present day. So I wanted to just do a new era. And then also I was looking at, you know, beauty. Um, Women's beauty was a theme and... uh, I was kind of looking at various eras in terms of when women were at their most glamorous. And the late 40s was a great time for women's fashion. And so when I pitched the idea to CBS, I was dealing with, you know, I was saying I could be late 40s, early 50s. And Julie McNamara, the president of the network, said, oh, make it in the 40s because that'll feel like a completely different era. 
And I did a little research in terms of hairstyles and, and costumes, and we decided on that. Although I did have to futz with hair a little bit because some of the hairstyles that my hair, hair gal who had done research for me, um, some of them were god-awful. Uh, so we had to find some stuff that was authentic to the time, but still something that modern, I think, people could relate to because some of them see uh, the curls and stuff got a little crazy but certainly in terms of the gowns and everything there was just a lot of fun choices and and really it was about a time when you know women worked harder at being ornamental and then how do you contrast that with a woman who's not good at that so sort of thing so that was really my my entry point is to show glamorous women who have it all together and then show the one who's on the outside looking in yeah, 100%. And I mean, they've got the good frocks. <laughs> You've certainly got them all. I'm a sucker for that period. So yeah, I was, I was just, I was lapping it all up. <laughs> and Alma's not too shabby on the sewing machine either. I mean, she whips up that, that frock pretty well. <laughs> um, yeah, we had some fun with that. It was interesting. And one, one of the things I, I lucked out with, with Alison Tolman is she's such a generous actress. And we, we laid out her evolution in style over the course of the, the series, which is a little tricky because as a character is starting to work at it, how far do we bring them along hair and makeup and nails every single step of the way? And I had never done that with a character before where their own look changed so drastically over the course of 10 episodes. So that was another um, interesting thing. And I was blessed to have an actress who really would, you know, like, we're going to make you look horrible to begin with, but you're going to end kind of fancy. And she she was in for the ride, which was lovely. <laughs> yeah, stay with it. <laughs> um, and, and I mean that that's it. that brings us to the, the question of casting. And um, you know you've got these characters on the page, but how do you how do you find your ladies? And, and what well, I'll tell you the interesting thing about Alison Tolman was that you know when you're a writer like I am and you're doing your your show, you have a meeting with the casting department of the network. So they'll prepare, they do a pre-prepared list. They've read the script, they've heard the pitch, they know where you're going in the, the season. So they'll prepare their choices for you just for a chance for, for them to weigh in. And so they gave me a big list of names for Alison Tolman. And she was the only name I didn't recognize because I had never seen the show that kind of made her well-known, which is Fargo. And so I said, who's this Alison Tolman person? And everyone screamed at me, you haven't seen this first <laughs> season of Fargo? And I was like, no, leave me alone. Yeah. And so they, uh, they, they hooked me up and I started watching it and I binged that sucker in two days because I loved that first season. I haven't seen subsequent seasons yet because I was watching specifically for Alison. But from the moment I saw her, I went, oh yeah, she's, she's the gal. She's the gal. She's the right age. I, I loved everything. Then we... Um, set up, I think I had two different Zoom calls with her just to talk about the part and where it was going because I I didn't have that many episodes done when I first spoke to her. So I had to kind of lead her to the end of the, the season where we were going. And um, it, one of the great joys of my life because Allison and I have now become friends and you know I'm determined to work with her again. And that's how I ended up with Allison. And with Lana Perea, this is really kind of fun too. I wrote the part for Eva Longoria. And, I, you know, I was like, Eva, see if you're free, you know, and Eva had a directing thing planned for the time. So she was like, Mark, I, I'm going to be directing a, a big movie. And then she said, do you know who would be good? I've got this friend, Lana Perea. Did you ever see Once Upon a Time? And I said, no, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, had Jennifer Goodwin on the first season. She did Once Upon a Time, but I, I only saw the pilot. I never saw the series. And she said, 
you need to look at my friend Lana Priya. And Lana came in and she auditioned for it. And brilliantly, mm-hmm. we put her through her paces because we gave her a bunch of different scenes to do. And that's how I found Lana, which was a, a recommendation from her old pal and mine, Eva Longoria. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> it all pays forward, doesn't it? <laughs> and it's good to have good friends because, you know, Eva, Eva's, um, I don't know if you've ever gotten a chance to interview her. No. She's great. She's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And Eva, you know, now that she's doing work behind the camera, she's very like, well, I can't do it, but who would be good for you? She's starting to think like a, a producer director yeah. and, and very helpful. And so, you know, sadly for Eva, I think the next time I create a part like that, I'll probably go to Lana first. I love her so much. (laughs) Um, Them's the breaks. But um, you've spoken before um, of the way I think your mum influenced Jennifer's character in in the last season. Um, And I'd love to know sort of the way that the women in your life inspire the women you write. Is there anyone this year that you've drawn from or people that you've met? My mother, um, who passed away in September of 2020, was, you know, the, the great inspiration of my life, because I was so fascinated by the way she handled life. Mm-hmm. And she was from Oklahoma, the daughter of a cattle rancher. So she had kind of a Protestant Midwestern stoicism that she faced life head on. She, she knew life could be tough and she wanted more than anything for us life to be pleasant And when it wasn't, you know, my mother, and I think I actually co-opted some of this, her words and put them in an episode of Desperate, you know, um, in one of the later years. Uh, And we put it in Bree's mouth because Bree very much was my mom. My mother's attitude about trauma or or something that induced grief, she said, well, the way I handle it is I I take my feelings about it and I just put it in a box in the closet in my mind. Mm -hmm. And when I have time, I'll take the box down and examine it. But until I have time, I don't want to deal with it. Mm. And my mother had a very specific way of going through life, trying to be a lady and shoving things off to the side. And I thought every mother repressed her emotions in the same way. (laughs) So the older I got and started seeing how other people dealt with stuff, the more fascinated I became with how my mom did it. My mother wanted very much to be a housewife. She gave up a career as an opera singer to, you know, get married to my dad and have us kids. So that was a choice of hers. And, and of course, the famous story, which I've told before, was I didn't really know what my mother had gone through until I was 40 years old and sitting on a sofa at her house. And we were watching coverage of the Andrea Yates trial. She was an American woman who drowned five of her children in a bathtub. Mm-hmm. And I said to my mother, gosh, can you imagine a woman being so desperate that she would hurt her own children? And my mom took her cigarette out of her mouth and said, I've been there. And that was the first time, you know, I reacted like, what? And that was the first time she ever started telling me about how alone and desperate she had felt while my father was off getting his master's degree. And of course, the idea for Desperate Housewives was born in that conversation Mm -hmm. because I thought, gosh, if you've had moments of of frustration and, and desperation like that, then every wife and mother has. And as I've gone through and created other characters, certainly Jennifer Goodwin's character, there was a lot of my mother there, a woman who's put her trauma up in the closet Mm -hmm. in her mind and is trying to go on with her life. And then with Alma, you know, the timidity, you know, is kind of a little mixture of my mother and then myself, Mm -hmm. you know, my own kind of feelings about 
being in Hollywood where everyone is just so darn gorgeous and pretty. And do I feel like I belong in this community? And I, I empathize greatly with people who feel like they're on the outside looking in. And I, I went through a lot of those emotions. And certainly how Lana Perea's character, you know, the control, the political control she exercises amidst a yeah. group of women. Yeah. My mother was never like that. My mother was nicer than that. But my mother also dealt with women who could say very cutting things and, and exerted their femininity in dictatorial ways. And I was fascinated by the politics because, you know, back in that era, women weren't so much aspiring to be the presidents. They were the wives of the presidents and they were the, the presidents of their own garden club and all of that. But yeah. there were still machinations and maneuvering and that kind of thing that, you know, Claire Booth Luce so beautifully illustrated in The Women. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I loved those kind of old fashioned feminine politics. So it was fun to take a deep dive into that world. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's so fascinating, just the limited, <laughs> the limited means, but, the, you know, playing that to huge effect. Um, and I guess that brings us to soaps and the conventions of soap um, as a genre. You really lean into that so well, really faithfully and add more to it, of course. But so where does your love of soap come from and, and um, just that the, the machinations within that? So if you start with the basic idea of continuing drama and what is your continuing drama about? Because, you know, certainly in America, HBO had a prison drama called Oz. And I don't know, I would assume that you've gotten it at some point out there in Australia. Yeah. But I go, it's just a soap opera, but it's just men in prison occasionally raping each other. You know, so that's like their thing. <laughs> and, you know, you can do it with Succession, you know, which yeah. is a, a classier form of Dallas and Dynasty, yeah, yeah. you know, with all the power and the rich people. And the, the milieu of my choosing, you know, the suburbs, because that's where I came from. I was raised in Orange County, California, in a lovely little tract home. And just seeing these people, you know, we were the American ideal, uh, the leave it to beaver, father knows best family. I mean, we lived in that world that there was a model for us on television to follow. So when I created Desperate, I had so much fun with subverting it with a kind of a darker comedic tone, because I'm saying, well, maybe the wives and mothers are up to more than you know, and maybe have bigger problems than anyone is admitting. And I had so much fun dealing with both feminine characteristics, you know, women, women as a species, and then the darkness of humor that, that I got, quite frankly, from my mother. Yeah. It, it was something that I thought, you know, let me, I want to do that again, but give myself a new venue to play in, which is how Why Women Kill was developed, which was now I can take the chess pieces and move them around every season, yeah. but I still get to deal with women. And, I'll, and I call the show Why Women Kill. So I'm, I, have, I owe the audience a murder, at least one, <laughs> if not more. And it's, it's a fun world for me to dabble in. And uh, I probably, my next show will probably be nothing like this. But for right now, I was kind of happy to go back to those themes because I understand them so well. And as I get older, I understand more because I, you know, I've learned quite a bit, even since my mother died, having conversations with people who knew her and hearing their stories. So sometimes it's good to kind of hear like, you know, other things that were going on during my childhood. And you're yeah. like, oh, that's why that happened. Mm. OK, so um, it's the place I choose to play in and I find it endlessly fun and entertaining. And I like to pass that fun along to the audience. 
Yeah, no, no, and we lap it up. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'd love to talk, you know, the, your, the arc of your career. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I'd like to go way back, and yes, of course, I have to touch on Golden Girls, sorry. <laughs> you probably get asked all the time. <laughs> I feel very honoured to have written on that show, and I loved those women, so I'm happy to talk about it at any time. That was, that was your second job, was it? I had my first job with my ex-writing partner. We did 10 episodes of a failed show called Homeroom, it was about uh, kids in the inner city and the, the man who gave up his uh, high-priced advertising job to go back and give something back to the community. So it was a little earnest for my taste, and it kind of didn't work, and it lasted 10 episodes. But during that 10 episodes, where I was on my first writing staff learning things, our script, my writing partners and I had written a spec Golden Girls, and our script landed um, over with Thomas Harris, the production company that produced it. And they liked what they read and had us in for a meeting and we did a freelance episode. And for any fan of the show, the, the script we wrote before we were on staff was the one where Dorothy and Sophia dress up as Sonny and Cher to enter a mother-daughter pageant. That's kind of, <laughs> I think, what it's best known for. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they liked our writing and then they brought us aboard. And it was like going from elementary school into your MFA program. Like that's the, the difference in terms of the depth of the writing, the level of the writing. Amazingly talented guys. And what's funny is I was only the youngest writer there for three weeks because after I started and I was, um, I believe I was 27 at the time, Mitch Hurwitz came three weeks later and he went on to create Arrested Development. And so Mitch and Jamie and I, my, uh, my writing partner, and then Tracy Gamble and Richard Baxey were there. Tracy created Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. Um, we were all kind of, you know, young bucks together and uh, learning our craft. And it was it was a tremendous time in my life. And I got to be become friends with all the women. I loved each and every one of them. And that's, you know, I got to hang out with the Golden Girls. How cool is that? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> and I mean, you can see a, a, draw a line of the way that dynamic between the women and, and the fun and the, the cheekiness um, and all the women's romance, you know, lives too. I, I think it, it's just, you can see the long tail of that in your career, I would imagine. Do you, um, what did you hone your skills in those times and how have you sort of carried that through? Well, you know, one of the best things was working with really talented actors because when you would, we'd send a script to table and if something didn't work, it was never their fault. Yeah. And I've been at the tables with, you know, different casts over the course of my career where sometimes the actor won't make the right choice or their instincts aren't right or they're not good at reading a script cold. And Golden Girls set a high bar for me. Mm-hmm. And they t- it taught me that it doesn't kind of matter what you do as a writer if you don't have good actors. Because, you know, you can, you can write Streetcar Named Desire, <laughs> but if you don't cast, you know, Vivian Lee or Jessica Tandy, who did the original, you could very well be in trouble. People won't get how good it is. And so that taught me the importance of casting and simplicity because, you know, the best sitcom scripts, the the dialogue is very sparse. And also the women were lovely. So I'm, I, I was used to working with nice ladies. And so over the course of my career, 32 years now, you know, I've bumped up against a couple of people who aren't so pleasant Mm. and I always think if the Golden Girls can show up at their age and always be nice to everybody, come on. So, you know, you learn things about humanity and you learn things about technique and you learn things about acting. 
But to have a job on such a magnificent show as Golden Girls at the beginning of your career, it just sets you up to go forth because you've been exposed to greatness. And whether you can replicate it or not is another matter. But I, I certainly was given a, a high bar and I kind of knew where to aim. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the biggest effect it had on me, I think. Look, I really just wanted to thank you for your time. Um, you've been so generous with this. And especially thank you for sharing the stories of your mom as well. That That's, um, that's sorry. What I like to talk that, about but... her because more so than most people, I you know, and I identify with the author Amy Tan, who wrote Joy Luck Club, because her mother, Daisy Tan, was a big influence on her. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, you know, I just want to pay homage where it's due. And yeah. the greatest moment in my career was when we won our first Golden Globe. And I got to do my acceptance speech and my mom was in the center in the back. So I got to literally talk to her and tell everyone in the room, you know, this woman gave me this idea. She rescued me because I was I was broke and my mm-hmm. mom floated me for three years while I wrote Desperate Housewives. So um, any chance I, you're lovely to let me talk about her. So I appreciate that. But, but go ahead and ask your, your, your question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I like to ask um, my guests what inspires them or what they've been watching, sort of what, what they've been watching lately. What, what, are you a big movie watcher or, or a streamer? You know what? Uh, usually I get pointed towards things by my friends. Um, and I love to w- watch things that I never in a million years could write. Sure. Like I watch procedurals a lot, like Law and Order, because that's not my bailiwick. So I love to kind of learn. Sure. I, I, the thing that's had the most impact on me, um, and I'm going to be just one of a billion people saying this, um, Squid Game, uh-huh. I thought was magnificent because it hit on every level. They had the high concept idea, like Hunger Games. But then what they had that I don't think Hunger Games had or didn't really even have time for because they were doing it movies was the rich character work and they made me care about people who were very flawed characters indeed and that guy's story reminded me of my own because he he worked really hard at trying to sell that idea for a long time much like i did with desperate housewives and so i was very impressed with that show and from the moment like halfway through the first episode i was like oh god this is the real deal here so i definitely love that and I always look forward to anything. I loved Luca. That was the movie I, I saw this summer. I'm a big, I used to work at Disneyland when I was a kid yeah. doing parades. So um, anytime Disney, you know, animated puts out something, you know, the Disney part of my soul still like to make sure I go to the theaters and takes it in. So I have not seen Encanto yet, but I'm looking massively forward to it. So, you know, along with this dark humor that lives inside my head, there's also, a, you know, a my mother's, you know, 10-year-old son who's playfully wants to go out and be entertained by beautiful animation. So both both things reside uh, within my soul um, side by side. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> let's keep it that way. Um, look, thank you. You've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. It's just so lovely to love to chat. Fiona, thank you. Uh, it was lovely talking to you and, and I hope to go to Australia some point and meet you in person. Ah, well, likewise. When the world opens up and that's a possibility, <laughs> let's lock it in. All right, all the best and congratulations. All right, y'all take care. Thank you. Well, that was lovely. And uh, I have to say, since we spoke, One Women Kill has been renewed for a third season. But as I say, you can watch season one right now at SBS On Demand. And from January 15, season two will join it at SBS On Demand. So get busy binging. Thank you for joining me on the playlist this week. I'll be back to bring you more of these companion interviews to some of the great shows and movies. I've got some more coming in a couple of weeks. So if you like this, go ahead and rate, review, subscribe. All of that helps others to find the show. 
and do keep reaching out and telling me what you've been watching and who you'd like to hear more from. I'm keen not to just focus on what's new, so if you're up for it, I'd love to revisit some past shows and movies with their makers too. I'd love talking to someone about something they made a little while back. So I'll be casting the net wide for interviews, so let me know who you'd like to hear from. You can always reach out to me on Twitter. I'm always there. Uh, my handle is at anything but Fifi. And the playlist is produced by Mr. Jeremy Wilmot. And thank you for making me sound okay, Jez. Until next time, stay safe and thank you for listening.